2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, inflation. I'm Tom Busby in New York.
3: I'm Caroline Hepker here in London, where we're looking ahead to Europe's insurers reporting earnings amid extreme weather.
4: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look forward to Alibaba's earnings and to see if the environment has really changed.
5: I'm Caitlin Lyons in Washington, where we're thinking about labor strife and its impact on President Biden.
2: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on
6: Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com
2: and via the Bloomberg
5: Business app.
2: Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with Inflation. As we await July inflation data coming out this Thursday and joining us to talk about what to expect and so much more, Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for being here. Great to be here again. Well, for starters, what are we expecting to see in the July consumer prices report? Yeah. I hate to do this to you, but I'll start by being a little nerdy here.
6: Uh, we are expecting inflation to rise because there was no inflation in July of last year. Inflation came in flat at 0% uh, change in July of 2022. So if we get a little inflation, and we're predicting a little inflation, it just is going to make inflation overall go up. So we're expecting, at this point, a two-tenths percent gain for the month of July, which would push inflation up to 3.2% from 3%. Now, obviously, that is something the The Fed
2: is going to look through and analysts are going to look through and not think it's a a major issue. Well, the Fed last month in June, 3%. That was very encouraging. Still, the Fed voted unanimously to hike its benchmark lending rate, 25 basis points. That's after a slight pause in the previous meeting. What would it take in terms of CPI for the Fed to... Change up to pause again to, you know, what what would they look for?
6: Uh, Jay Powell was asked that question at his news conference after that Fed decision. And basically, he said it would take several months of a trend in other words if we saw inflation rising for several months uh, then they would start to think that uh, we have a problem that inflation is coming back and they'd need to crack down more if inflation were to surprise to the downside this month and maybe another month then the fed might be inclined when they get to the september meeting to hold off again and the next day we get producer prices What, what have we seen there there we've seen some disinflation. Producer prices have come down, particularly for energy and food and uh, some of the uh, more basic numbers. The issue is that we have seen oil prices rise in uh, the last couple of weeks, and that could catch it it wasn't through much of july but that could catch on to the end of the survey and we could see end up seeing uh, a little bit of a rise in headline producer prices we'll be watching the core to see if progress continues to be made there producer prices and consumer prices are not directly linked because there are middlemen in the middle but uh they give you a sort of a trend idea of which way you're going
2: now you talked about energy prices oil prices Back to 80 bucks a barrel. We haven't seen that in several months. Uh, gasoline up 25 cents a gallon in just the past week. So there, now there are legitimate factors in this, the heat, OPEC plus. But but is there any end? Is Demand is actually down.
6: Yeah, the the real problem has been Tom that uh, we've had some refinery outages, especially down south, in part because of the heat, some unusual outages of uh, refineries, and that's made gasoline more scarce. So the price has gone up. And there's a feeling that it, if and when things cool off down there, I feel lucky because we're in the Northeast where it's not been that hot. But uh, if, if and when things cool off down there, then we should see the refineries come back online and prices drop. So sometime within the next month. Now, obviously, as OPEC Plus raises uh, the price of uh, the input <laughs> to this oil. Uh, That's going to put some upward pressure on gasoline prices, but nothing to the extent that we have seen. And what would end up happening is gasoline prices would not uh, rise by as much. And so you'd see a a downtrend in headline.
2: And again, people are not filling up like they were before. People still working from home, don't need the gas. So it's confounding to see it keep going up, even though demand has leveled off.
6: Well, it's been an unusual kind of situation, but what hasn't after this uh, pandemic? Maybe people are flying more. Maybe people are, are, uh, I don't know about taking a train, but taking cruise ships, things like that. We've seen good reports from the airlines. So uh, maybe it isn't a driving summer for a lot of people. And I guess with the heat, the way it is, you can understand that.
2: Well, people are traveling. Part of that, consumer confidence has moved higher. Fears about a recession we just had last week, Bank of America squash, the previous forecast for a recession. and But there are signs consumers may be pulling back on their spending. Let me give you a couple of examples that I saw. And that is Altria, the maker of Marlboro, saying people are cigarettes are so expensive, they're buying discount smokes. Uh, Pepsi says people want Pepsi, but they're going to dollar stores. They're going to warehouse clubs trying to get a deal. So are we seeing that? You, you know, are there signs that consumers are being more conservative now? we're kind of getting back to spending levels and spending patterns
6: that we saw before the pandemic. A lot of people went to the Walmarts and the dollar stores and things like that trying to Save money in the past on groceries, et cetera. And they're going back to that uh, behavior. But this is all kind of what you would expect in a world that's not overstimulated by the government and that is uh, facing higher interest rates and costs of doing business because the Fed is trying to tamp down on demand. The issue becomes when it crosses some sort of line and we get to the point where. Uh, People start to worry about recession and then pull back even more, and we get uh, what results in a
2: contraction. And the clock is ticking on something that could really change that for 40 million Americans. That's the looming restart of those federal student loan payments, and that's in October. That's coming up pretty quickly. That is coming quickly, and it's going to be interesting to see
6: what happens because uh, for a lot of people, uh, they— just use that money to spend on other things and in theory still have it. They just have to reprogram it to paying bills. But a lot of people uh, took out other loans and, you know, used the money they were saving on their student loan bills to pay the other loans. And now they're going to have two sets of bills and one set of payments. And then there's another group that kept paying throughout the entire time period because they figured, well, it's going to come back anyway, and I I should make progress on uh, bringing down my loan, especially when they're not charging me interest. And so how that all plays out isn't going to be clear, but it, it isn't completely clear, but it is expected to have an impact. Now, economists sort of extrapolate from the total number of people with loans and their, their average loan payment and come up with a number like a tenth or two tenths off GDP. So not a huge amount, but uh,
2: enough to make a difference. Well, a huge amount for people in their 20s and 30s, I would think. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Fed and their timeline. The next meeting... September 20th, right? Correct. Well, what do we see between then and now that's going to influence the Fed's next decision as far as consumer spending, inflation, jobs, and more?
6: Well, I've got the, the, the couple of jobs reports, uh, the, the, like the one we just saw, and uh, we have another one coming up, which will give us the... August payrolls at the beginning of uh, September, and then the CPI report we're talking about and another CPI report before they meet again, and we'll have one more PCE inflation uh, report along with consumer spending at the end of August. So the Fed will have a couple of months' worth of data before they meet again, and that goes back to the point I made about what uh, Jay Powell said, that they want to see a couple of months' trend to have an idea of where we're really going with this. Are we seeing inflation come down and and demand soften? Are we seeing incipient signs of a recession because people are pulling back a lot? Uh, Or is inflation coming back? Those are the questions that
2: they hope a lot of this data will answer. And it's not just our central bank, but in England and in the Eurozone, they're dealing with very similar situations, but in a way, a, a worse inflation problem over there. Is it influencing the U.S. inflation? Or is it the opposite? Are we helping them? <laughs> at, at this point, uh, we
6: are not helping Europe all that much uh, because the dollar is strong, so their trade is uh, not as uh, vigorous uh, with the U.S. Uh, but it, uh, it it does help uh, the United States some now. Uh, trade in this case because of we're in a post pandemic situation is less important between the United States and these other countries than it is among those countries the uh, the European Union trades heavily among itself. And people there have done sort of the same thing that we have in terms of cutting back on goods spending. And companies have cut back on investments, and that's hurting the manufacturing powers like Germany and France and Italy uh, there, because uh, their economies are struggling with uh, with the lack of uh, manufacturing. And uh, we've seen that in the uh, PMI numbers and we see that in the industrial production numbers. Uh, in the UK, it's a combination of things. It's a little bit of that, uh, but it's also... Uh, The the bureaucracy brought on by Brexit for trade has slowed trade and made it more expensive. They're still trying to negotiate new free trade agreements, and they haven't had uh, a lot of luck, (laughs) certainly not with the United States yet. So they have the added costs from that as well, and then they've got a very strong labor market in the same way that the United States does, which also puts upward pressure on prices.
2: Well, thank you, Michael. And that was Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, insurance companies attempt to change with climate change risk lurking. I'm Tom Busby, and this
0: is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Up later in our program, earnings from Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba and the Chinese government's role in tech in that country. But first, extreme weather gripping many parts of the world, with July likely to be announced as the world's hottest month on record. The impact on society is enormous, and on the insurers who navigate climate change. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Caroline Hepker.
3: Tom, Europe's big insurers from Allianz to Generali, Munich Re and Zurich Insurance are reporting their earnings in the days ahead. But Europeans are among the least insured against certain types of extreme weather and other natural disasters, something that we've seen a lot of across the continent over the last few months. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Germany correspondent, Oliver Crook. Oliver, great to have you with us. Extreme weather has hit Europe in the past few months, in a way... I think, and I'm sure you'll agree, that has made many people think about climate change in a totally new light, don't you think?
7: I would think so. But, you know, obviously, as you know, this is an exceedingly polarized issue for some people. It's hard, though, when you see the kind of trend in terms of the temperatures rising over the last century to kind of not at least pose yourself the question, particularly when you see the ways that it touches, you know, human life in all this different way. We've talked about how it touches agriculture. Sometimes it's cooking food right on the branch. You have, you know, all these rivers drying up. The Rhine is one we've talked about a lot, the most important waterway in Europe, you know, that moves just tons and tons and tons down, up and down every single day. And that basically becomes unnavigable at a certain point. We've seen it in France with the nuclear reactors. They can't draw enough water to cool off. And obviously these wildfires in Greece. So I think it's front of mind for everybody. I think the challenge that the market has is how do you price these risks and how do you think about these financially?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you were speaking to someone very interesting, Munich Re's Ernst Rauch, about this, because they've got a whole climate um, centre and they do big reporting, not just on their own business, but kind of more broadly across the insurance sector. They've also, Munich Re itself, has its earnings coming up uh, in the days ahead. Is weather making certain things uninsurable?
7: So this is the, this is the question. I asked him if it made things uninsurable. And so he gave a sort of interesting response to that. He said, listen, we're an insurance company. We will insure anything. The problem is you will not be able to afford it. And they look at a sort of simple equation about kind of the risk that is generated by kind of natural disasters, how vulnerable, you know, how, in what ways have you mitigated it and the underlying value of the assets. And he says that even despite the latter two, what he's seeing across the globe is a higher, higher, higher risk of basically weather-related events. He says 80 to 90% is down to weather and that a third of all of the losses in the first half of this year were not down to actually a single weather event, but just more powerful storms over in the United States.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the data that Munich Re um, pulled together um, showing a near record year for losses due to natural disasters, so things like earthquakes in Turkey and Syria uh, and the storms that you mentioned um, in the US. I mean, the numbers globally are quite staggering, aren't they?
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, $110 billion in the first half of the year. And really, again, I was very interested to speak to him because, you know, in a topic that is polarized for many people, it's their business to understand what is going on in the world and to try to appraise that risk. So I asked him about kind of how he really thinks about climate change and how many, you know, how much of these losses can we say are really attributable to climate change?
8: we observe upward trends of losses from weather-related events in many parts of the world and with many weather-related perils. Depending on the region, it is flooding. It can be what's called these convective storms or severe thunderstorms in the United States or wildfires in some parts of the world. So with this upward trend, we, of course, as a risk management company, we need to understand what are the drivers of this trend. And the first element of, the, of these drivers are socioeconomic factors, so increasing wealth and population. And inflation, of course, today plays a major role in this as well. However, even after adjusting for inflation and wealth, we do see in some regions upward trends uh, with respect to losses, which cannot be explained by these socioeconomic factors. And here we analyzed and also meteorological data. We collaborate with scientific organizations in order to understand whether there is a link between increasingly severe weather, be it thunderstorms or flooding, extreme rainfalls and others, and the losses we observe. And the outcome is, as as of today, is that we have strong indications, not a scientific proof, but strong indications that part of the increase of losses is already driven by changing weather patterns, and they are by themselves driven by climate change.
7: And sort of regardless of the cause, if this is just proportionally and numerically going up, this obviously is going to bear on the price of insuring things. Can you talk to me about how much more expensive insurance is going to get as a result of these changes?
8: Well, first of all, if the hazard component of our analysis So the probability of severe flooding or severe other weather-related events is increasing and or the intensity of of these events, then yes, the overall risk increases and that drives the premium. Now, the question is, of course, um, by how much? And there is no simple answer and especially no uniform answer for all parts of the world and all parents.
7: I also want to talk to you about the risk, not just of insurance prices going up, but basically parts of the world becoming uninsurable. We hear about this in Florida, you know, California, possibly a risk. Now we see kind of weather patterns changing and how hot it's getting across Europe. Um, what's the risk for the uninsurable portions of the world where you just cannot make an assessment
8: or it's just too risky? The challenge is much more if. We look at the need to adjust our prices in line with increasing risks. And and here, climate change drives up the risks and as a consequence, drives up the risk premium.
3: So that was Ernst Routh, the head of Corporate Climate Centre at Munich Re, speaking to you. Um, Oliver, as we think then about the financial consequences of this, um, How do we think about then the earnings that we're going to get from Munich Re, Zurich Insurance, General Alley, and the other big insurance names across Europe?
7: Yeah, so listen, I'll I'll talk about Allianz because they're sort of the biggest and they would release over on Thursday. And so they, you know, they've actually have had a pretty good run. And what's interesting is because Allianz also has this massive asset management unit. But actually this year... It's the insurance that's done the heavy lifting. Their insurance side of the business has done very well, and they may even raise, uh, you know, operating profit outlook. And so things are looking very solid in the insurance sector. They've actually, you know, they I, I don't know how big natural catastrophe will be in terms of their bottom line. We may see some more claims in Italy and Germany in the second quarter due to the floods, but they did not have huge natural catastrophe expenses um, over in the first quarter. And that is in part, perhaps, Caroline, something that we I'm sure we'll talk about is the last Lack of insurance for mm-hmm. natural disasters here in, in Europe. I was actually astounded by some of these numbers.
3: Yeah, absolutely. This, this idea of, of um, the underinsured in Europe is, is a big issue, especially, as you say, you've highlighted, well, the wildfires in Greece, but there've been drought conditions in Spain as well as along the River Rhine.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at a sort of global breakdown of kind of what is uninsured, Asia Pacific, 57% of the direct losses are uninsured. North America, that's only 24%. Globally, on average, it's 61%. In Europe, it's almost 90%. So, I mean, that, that to me came as a, you know, as a real shock. You think of a kind of more developed nations and richer nations are kind of more risk averse and more willing to insure certain assets. And I was really stunned to discover that that's the sort of Europe, European figure here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. We look ahead then uh, and await the earnings in the next few days from the big insurance names here in Europe, Allianz, Generali, Munich Re, Zurich Insurance and others. So there'll be a lot of focus on those results. Thank you so much for being with me. Uh, I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. John.
2: Thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, Alibaba earnings and the Chinese tech industry. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg.
0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: The countdown has begun.
2: I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. What's next for tech companies in China following the end of a government crackdown? Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba among those in focus with an earnings report on tap. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis.
4: Tom, Alibaba reports earnings in the coming week, and the results will be arriving at a time that the landscape is changing fast especially for big platform companies in china alibaba meituan and peers may get an extra subsidy through 2024 to speed up their business expansion that's a step that policymakers hope will speed up consumption in the country china's been making a number of efforts of late to stimulate the economy and consumption is a very big part of that story joining us now is sarah jung bloomberg china technology reporter So, Sarah, let's talk about the earnings first, and then we'll take a look at the broader environment and see how that is changing. What are we expecting in terms of sales and profits from these earnings?
9: In this latest quarter, we're expecting to see some of the recovery that you just talked about um, being reflected. Obviously, consumption has been more uneven than expected uh, following China's reopening, but there have been... New revenue growth factors that have been, you know, injecting momentum in the various businesses. And that's because Alibaba announced its historic reshuffling, um, with, a division into six individual business units earlier this year. And so that's given each of the units a chance to potentially uh, seek independent funding or um, public listings. So that, in addition to some of the latest leadership announcements and reshufflings that we've seen, are expected to um Bring more optimism for investors.
4: We we understand that the consumption boom is is lagging a little bit compared to what was expected. Uh, is is that the case at that end at the at the sort of e-commerce segment uh, that Alibaba represents, uh, or is it right across the board?
9: Yeah, we're expecting that to be reflected year in terms of year-on-year growth, especially for the bread and butter business Taobao and Tmall, and also in the international business. Um, there's going to be some headwinds from just the broader Macroeconomic environment um, for AliExpress, Lazada, and Trendyol, which is their businesses in Europe and Southeast Asia.
4: What about the cloud business? Is that is that something that will stand out in terms of the rest of the earnings?
9: So cloud is very interesting because we saw that the CEO, Daniel Zhang, he's stepping down and he's going to focus just on heading up cloud. Cloud is expected to be, was expected to be a pillar of growth for Alibaba in the years to come. Um, It's been, you know, loss making so far and it's been losing a bit of market share to some of the government state backed cloud providers. But because of the energy and the frenzy and excitement around AI in China's market right now, that is something that we're looking to see Um, Ali Cloud, now that it's separate and has its own operating environment where Daniel Zhang can focus entirely on cloud to give it some new um, energy.
4: So, at the top now with Joe Tsai there, it seems like it's coincided with his being named to that position and Daniel Zhang being moved to the cloud exclusively that the stock has kind of caught fire. I'm not sure the two are connected, but if you could say a couple of words about what it means to have Joe Tsai back in that position.
9: Sure. So Joe Tsai, he's a known entity. He's been with Alibaba since the very beginning. Having him there as a reliable, you know, person at the helm of the company, that's something that investors are excited about. Same with um, the new CEO Eddie Wu. He's also been a longtime veteran of the company. Um, So these are people who have been with Jack Ma, who's sort of still the spiritual leader of the company from the very beginning. Um, Again, known entities, known quantities who have been heading up some of the major units since the beginning. Uh, Eddie Wu, for example, he was the chief architect of some of Alibaba's flagship products like Taobao and Tmall. Um, So we know that we know that. So it's a positive. It's a positive. That's right.
4: You mentioned Jack Ma is still the spiritual leader of Alibaba. And I'm just curious about to what extent he's still involved in the running of the company.
9: It's interesting because earlier this year when he reappeared on campus, employees were so excited to see him. Um, And and that sort of speaks to the mantra and maxims that he has instilled in the company's culture from the beginning. Um, Joe Tsai and Eddie Wu, like I mentioned, they both embody that as well. He is not directly involved in the day-to-day operations from what we know anymore, given, you know, the regulatory scrutiny and the tech crackdown over the last two years, he's really been stepping back from the limelight. And there was a lot of speculation before about whether or not he could return to China, we did see him back in Hangzhou. So that's another positive sign from the regulatory side.
4: Now, I'm curious about the overall environment. We've had a little bit of a change in thinking in China, I think, from policymakers, uh, even to the extent that in the property market, what they've been saying now is, is they've sort of not repeated the old mantra that houses are for living in, not for investing in. I wonder if the attitude has changed for the big technology companies, the big platform companies. It seems, like ever since the Ant IPO was pulled that big was bad and they wanted to support smaller companies and I wonder whether or not that has changed
9: right exactly it's really interesting we're seeing more and more signs from regulators that they want the big tech companies Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu and the rest to help them resuscitate what's really a flagging economy at the, at the moment.
4: So so big is okay now.
9: <laughs> we won't see them return to sort of the, the swaggering days of before um, COVID zero and before the tech crackdown um, in twenty. 2021, 2020. But we will see them slightly be unshackled to be able to pursue sort of tech sectors that Beijing sees as its primary Priorities strategically. So, for example, in AI, cloud computing, chips—these are all strategic areas they need to compete with the U.S. And we're going to see them be able to to move forward in those areas. In the
4: past, they snapped up a lot of smaller companies, startups, and really used uh, the the energy there and uh, you know the push in new technology areas. Uh, is that likely to continue?
9: That it seems like is still being reined in to mm. to some extent. So we're not going to see them be the main drivers of of venture capital and investment. So a lot of the startups we're talking to now, they're not really looking for investments from Tencent and some of the big giants anymore. Now they're more focused on just like smaller level applications and working with um, maybe early stage kind of investors rather than trying to be acquired by the big giants.
4: And I wonder whether or not they're as successful as they were before in attracting talent.
9: Talent is a big problem. Like we've been sort of dancing around this issue of China's um, sluggish economy. And so youth unemployment, that's a really big issue. Another reason why Beijing wants these big tech companies to come back and revive some of that, un- uh, that employment situation. Um, but yeah, talent is definitely a big issue. We were seeing some layoffs from some of these companies um, and just a lot of anecdotes about people leaving the industry or not being able to get the same kind of bonuses that they did before.
4: Now, we had an interesting moment recently where Ant wanted to, to buy back shares and wanted to buy back shares from all the shareholders, including the biggest one, Alibaba. And Alibaba chose not to sell. Now, some people interpreted that as a positive because it meant that Alibaba wanted to retain you know, more ownership and, and uh, involvement in Ant. And others might have wondered whether or not that meant that there was a little bit of difference in the management teams. Have we been able to explore that?
9: We have. So I think what Alibaba said officially is that they decided not to sell any any of their stake because Ant is still an important strategic partner to them. And what analysts say is that actually they're really hoping that you know, as Ant starts to come back, they're able to build up their business again, they can help contribute to, for example, Alibaba Cloud, Alicloud's growth going forward. They have been a really big contributor to their revenue, and now that they can build themselves back up again and expand, they can, again, um, be one of the highest contributors to that cloud revenue.
4: So we've seen Alibaba split into six different parts, uh, and that's, that's kind of slow in rolling out. For the other big companies like Tencent and Meituan and perhaps a few others, is it likely they'll take that path as well?
9: Alibaba actually is relatively unique in this aspect where we've – when we talk to analysts, they say that splitting into six different units allows them to unlock different kinds of business potential of these individual units. So, for example, like uh, Alicloud, Tsai which is a logistics arm, um, and – Uh, international digital commerce, so for example, AliExpress, Lazada, they all have business models that can be spun off relatively independently, where it's different from a company like Tencent, which is built around WeChat, this everything app that everyone uses in China. It's a lot harder to break off parts of the Tencent, you know, business from that core ecosystem. So we're not expecting to see the same kinds of movements from, uh, you know, competitors like Tencent.
4: Sarah Jung, Bloomberg China technology reporter. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on
2: Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we go to Washington and a look at all the union activity lately and what this means for the presidential race. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Labor and politics in focus as we head to the 2024 presidential election. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
5: Tom, that's right. Labor has been a hot button issue this summer. So joining me now to talk more about labor is Ian Colgren, who reports on the subject for us here at Bloomberg. So, Ian, first of all, let's just talk about UPS. This deal with the Teamsters is just a handshake deal at this point, right? Is there any chance that it's not going to be ratified?
10: there's always a chance that a deal won't be ratified and that everybody is going to be surprised. At this point, it's looking, however, like the deal probably will get through. There was a near unanimous vote of the local chapters of the Teamsters that endorsed it. However, that doesn't mean there's not grassroots opposition to this deal. And in fact, there is. Just yesterday, I talked to one of the leaders of One of the Vote No campaigns, who is just starting to ramp up the campaign and holding webinars and getting the word out on Twitter and Instagram, other social media. So we'll see if some of this opposition metastasizes in the next couple of weeks as Teamsters vote. But at this point, it's looking fairly, fairly safe to say there won't be a strike.
5: So maybe we won't see a strike in that case. But what's the likelihood we will see more strikes this summer? Or later on this year? I'm thinking of the auto workers primarily here.
10: Strikes, as we've seen over the past few months, are events that tend to build on one another. You see all of the action going on in Hollywood right now. There is certainly a possibility that the auto workers could strike when their contract expires in September. It's something that they have not been shy to do in the past. In 2019, they went on a six-week strike, which was the longest strike ever for the auto workers, longest auto strike in the history of the United States. And now they have a fiery new leader who has promised to really mm. take the companies to task. And that will be a whole different dynamic here as we get closer to the drop dead day for negotiations.
5: Well, speaking of leaders, Ian, how does all this play for President Biden, who has tried very hard to bill himself as a pro-labor president.
10: All of these strikes put President Biden in a tough spot because it essentially forces him to choose between the union and the company. And that's not a choice that he wants to make under any circumstance. He's somebody who has also tried very hard to champion uh, manufacturing and American innovation under his administration and it's just sort of a just sort of a no win situation for the president if he is to intervene in some of these strikes because he's gonna have to make somebody really unhappy. And in the mm-hmm. case of the rail deal late last year, he did have to make a lot of union members really unhappy by forcing a deal through Congress to avoid a potentially crippling strike for the US supply chain.
5: So how do you think this will play in The 2024 race, considering he's not just a sitting president, he's seeking re election.
10: He certainly risks alienating his base if he angers too many union members by siding against them in some of these negotiations. They're going to be watching closely to see whether his actions and his words match. It's something that no president really wants to deal with during a re election campaign. It's a show of populist anger from the base that has very little chance of benefiting a moderate incumbent like President Biden.
5: Well, looking forward to your continued coverage of the labor strife. Ian Colgren, who reports on Labor for Bloomberg, thank you so much. And Tom, back to you.
2: Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 Newsroom in Washington, and you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.